This is Howard Anderson, news editor at Information Security Media Group. Today we're discussing the results of the 2012 Healthcare Information Security Today survey with Sam Curry, Chief Technology Officer, Identity and Data Protection at RSA. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sam. Thanks for having me, Howard. Making sure that patient records are accessed appropriately is an essential component of any healthcare security strategy. Yet the survey shows that implementing multi-factor authentication ranks seventh on the list of top priorities for technology investments this year. And username and passwords remain the most common authentication method in use. So why isn't implementation of more sophisticated authentication a higher priority? What do you think, Sam? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's a question of maturity for a lot of the organizations. In many instances, folks are having to come from a deficit with respect to security and have to build up their security expertise and maturity. And uh, honestly, there's a, there's a sort of a carrot and a stick approach. Um, on the one hand, I think we see some regulations that try to encourage the right behaviors early. That's the sort of carrot side. And then there's the stick side, which is if you don't do it, you're going to get fined. And, and so in that kind of world, you're either trying to reach for the carrot or you're trying to avoid the stick. And it's very hard to back up and actually assess what would be the right move to do if we had a lot of time to plan this? Uh, and so you find that folks, what you find regulations is they act as a catalyst, they drive changes in behavior, but very often if people were to step back and say, well, how do we increase trust explicitly in the system, they might make some different different moves. So uh, for that reason, it looks logical to us. You should obviously put authentication at the top of the list. How do you really trust the people that you're dealing with are who and what they say they are, and yet very often we're busy chasing the checklist to avoid the fines, the stick. Uh, and so I think that's going to shift in the coming years. Um, but for now, it seems obviously authentication should be higher, and, and, and I think a lot of organizations would be well advised to stick it on the agenda, and yet they're still busy avoiding this, this notion of penalties and fines associated with a lot of the regulations that are driving the agenda and, frankly, the budget for now. Now, the survey shows that 27% of organizations have a web portal that provides patients with some access to certain records, and about a third expect to have one in place soon. What steps should these organizations take to authenticate the identity of patients seeking online access to their records through these portals, do you think? And can they learn some lessons from online banking? So that, that's really two, two questions. I'll take it in, in two parts. So what are the steps that they can take toward, to authenticate the identity of patients uh, seeking access to online records? Well, it's a world of cloud and it's a world of mobile devices. And there's a, a host of new tools available to, to identify people. You can start to tap into things like their their velocity, their physical velocity, their geolocation. You can start to tap into biometrics and behavior metrics. How do they do things? And, and you can start to pull this together to make decisions in a central place that give you not just a, is this Sam or Howard, yes, no kind of answer. Instead, give you how much do I trust on a scale of zero to a thousand that this is, in fact, Howard Anderson that I'm speaking to or that I'm, I'm doing a transaction with. A lot of that has to be tapped into, but I think the, the, the big thing will be don't think about a widget. Don't think about this is the thing I'll use to authenticate. Instead, think of a framework that can adapt. The bad guys shift their behavior. They're going to learn how to use new tools to break what we thought was unbreakable. There's new technologies are going to emerge. So instead, establish a framework that has ubiquity, that uses some of these latest technologies like cloud services, that, that can tap into many things and make sure it's intelligence-driven. Make sure it's got a risk engine behind it. Make sure that it can learn patterns of behavior. And so that you're not just building something and standing up a wall for now. You're, in fact, building an infrastructure that can adapt to how you're going to authenticate people for the next 20 or 50 years. And as for online banking, I'm going to shift gears with that answer and say, 
perhaps the first and most regulated place was, in fact, banking. And the reason is it's that old Willie Sutton attribution, which I don't even think he really said. It's, why does he rob banks? It's because that's where the money is. Um, the bad guys first went to the low-hanging fruit of going after the banks. And so the banks had the first toughest regulations, especially with things like FFIEC that came out, and said, you really got to make sure that you're dealing with the right people. And it was painful. They did it. And they started to build business processes that understood what security was and what the landscape of the bad guys were. And eventually they got past where the regulations were. I and mean, they got to quite mature perspectives on security and authentication in the business, not just the security people, but in the business. And, and healthcare is very much a, a similar state. Both bad guys are now turning their eyes towards healthcare. And the availability of interconnectedness, the potential for privacy violation as opposed to just outright loss, is enormous in the healthcare space. So um, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned by looking at what banking went through almost a decade behind exactly healthcare and saying, let's not learn those lessons the hard way. Let's instead build on those and get out ahead of it in our own space as well. The most common way organizations monitor who accesses patient information is by using the audit functions within applications, such as electronic health record systems. Is this the best approach to monitoring access? What do you think? Well, uh, I think uh, that's almost the you have to do it, right? So um, the, uh, the first collect all the information and then put it in some kind of, of data structure. And then the second thing that you have to do is you have to start thinking, well, how am I going to sift through it? How am I going to have alarms raised to me? And how am I going to establish patterns in there that are potentially significant and learn from them over time? So that I don't just know if something is good or bad, but I know if something has a, an implication from a regulatory perspective or might, might involve a, a subtle violation of pi, pi, uh, privacy or, or a patient's rights. So um, obviously monitoring is important. You both have to capture everything. But then you have to think about the taxonomy for what you get at the end and what kind of data structure you want to use with an eye to making intelligence-driven, pattern-recognizing technologies able to apply to it in the future. Even if those technologies don't exist now, uh, we can find parallels in things like network and systems management or security events and information management so that you can bring the right analytics toolkit to bear and you can have an intelligence-based way of generating predictive information about how bad guys are behaving or even how subtle shades of gray like privacy uh, issues might be popping out of your data from that pool. So, yeah, monitor, but uh, think now about the architecture, the data structures you want, and the kinds of tools, like big data tools, that you might want to apply to it later. So should hospitals and others be moving toward role-based access management systems to help guard against inappropriate access to sensitive patient information? The, the, the role-based approach is, um, is one of those inarguable ones. RBAC, as it's called, role-based access control, it makes a lot of sense in a lot of spaces. But I think it's about, in fact, uh, first you have, to, you have to try to set out what are the policies that we're going to apply. You really have to assess the kinds of roles that are going to go into this, and it, that's a difficult exercise. And then you have to be able to monitor according to those roles. And then just as we, you did with the events um, and with the sort of monitoring of what's happening in the environment, you can also start to build normative patterns for how people access information. In the event that that there's an emergency and somebody unexpected needs to have control transferred to them, like a, somebody goes into emergency surgery. You don't want to be sitting there having somebody denied access because you didn't explicitly think of the scenario that might have had them get, have to get this information through a new set of tools in a new location with the person's life in jeopardy. And so one of the things to do is to start to apply both a process to manage the evolution of the roles and how they access information, and then actually apply an intelligent system or an expert system on top and use big data tools 
to start to monitor how they shift and how they're likely to shift in the future, especially given the change in technology landscape. More people connecting with more kinds of devices in more ways with more applications than ever before. And that trend is only going to increase. So RBAC is a vital step. And again, just as with the monitoring, we want to try and apply the right kinds of intelligence and the right kinds of infrastructure and architecture to support how that will evolve in the future. Now, the survey shows about 58% of organizations are allowing clinicians to use personally owned mobile devices for work-related purposes, such as accessing patient records. And the use of mobile devices, including the BYOD trend, ranks as the number one perceived security threat. Given the growing use of personally owned tablets and smartphones in healthcare, what are the key security steps organizations need to take? Well, actually, uh, it's probably the number two perceived security threat, but it may even be one of the number one or two, I don't have formal data on this, perceived opportunities for, for new ways to, to be productive and to be connected. And that's a, it's both a huge blessing and a huge threat. If it was just, just a threat by itself, uh, I think we'd all be able to say, no, sorry, you can't bring that here. But the doctors want to be able to have things like tablets with very rich uh, information controls and visualization abilities that they can use on the fly. They want to be able to plug this into new ways with vehicles and with uh, operating theaters. They want to be able to do things up in the air. They want, you know, they want to have access and to get the technology almost out of the way between them and the data they're interacting with. And that is a huge, powerful initiative that could really revolutionize healthcare. But we have to take care of that, that threat. We have to take care of the concerns on the risk side of the equation, as, as you mentioned. So, so what, is this, what does the security um, organization do here? Well, uh, they have to start to invest in some new, more advanced technologies for being able to, to get hardware roots of trust on those mobile devices. And there are options for that. They can also look at ways of using containerization on those devices and look at the controls that can be deployed to it. So uh, what I've seen a lot of organizations do is they pick a particular class or category of devices that they can work closely with vendors around. The real trouble comes when a new doctor comes in or a doctor with a new device comes in and says, here, add this to it. In which case, you're going to be very careful how you, in fact, incorporate those into the environment. Is it okay to do email? If so, to what extent and how? Uh, what do you do in the event of somebody having inappropriate data? How do you pull the information? How do you pull those things? I think it requires a concerted effort on the part of a security organization to really understand and come up with a set of tools that they're going to use and a set of standards and practices and to keep it fresh. It's amazing how fast the mobile space is changing, both the, the underlying platforms and the software layer and the applications available from a, from a security and other perspective not just the security side, make this part of a bigger initiative. How are you going to benefit from BYOD to provide better health care and better services to patients and better services to, to doctors and to uh, medical practitioners? I think that requires its own initiative because, frankly, it really can revolutionize things. And it requires people who are saying, are we doing it right? How do we embrace this? And how do we use it to accelerate our business? A majority of organizations we surveyed say they are not using cloud computing, citing security as the top concern. Among those using cloud computing, about 40% are confident in the access controls for cloud-based applications. What specific steps can be taken to address security concerns in the cloud computing arena? Well, the cloud computing arena is actually several arenas. I think the most important thing is for, for organizations to classify not just data but also applications and to really understand what the cloud options are available to them. For instance, can they, in fact, move to a private cloud? Uh, can they move not just to a public cloud? Can they look at things like community clouds for some things or even hybrid clouds? 
So I don't like the word cloud in isolation. I feel it always has to have a qualifier in front of it. But it's important to understand that the real benefits associated with the cloud are around flexibility, performance, scalability, and interoperability. So if you're happily humming, humming along with an application that works well, for instance, in your ER or your ICU, you may have no need to move it to the cloud, but you might be able to get some of those benefits from deploying a private cloud or an internal, either internal or external private cloud. Understand the applications, understand the data, and understand the cloud options available. That's the key here. And put pressure on the public cloud providers to show you a roadmap for what they're going to do. Say, these are the things that I actually need addressed from a security perspective. And the Cloud Security Alliance actually has uh, good publication on domains that you should be watching for and that you should be enforcing things around. And, and ask the public cloud provider, give me your roadmap for these. And when they actually can satisfy enough of the items on the list, then you can move to them. But I would advise that you always have the ability to make sure that your workloads and your applications can be moved away from any given provider. Make sure that they are effectively interchangeable to you. That way you can vote with your feet, and you can say, show me the roadmap for how you're going to deliver future requirements and future security features, and if they don't, you can take it back. Okay, finally, a majority of survey respondents cite encryption as critical to protecting patient data. Besides encryption, are there other alternatives that organizations should consider when it comes to strong data protection? Well, encryption can be scary, but it's not really the encryption that's hard, in my opinion. It's really the key management that's hard making sure that keys are properly protected and they're accessible only to the authorized administrators and that they're rotated on a periodic basis, that, that can be difficult. And a strong key management product there can vastly help, or even key management services in some cases. Alternatively, newer technologies now exist that help remove the need for key management, things like tokenization, or sometimes it's called aliasing. And uh, that's a form of data protection for fixed format data type data, like account numbers, birth dates, uh, other types of personal identifiable or personal, personal health information. Tokenization essentially masks, it's like a bookmarking system, masks sensitive data and does not really require the use of keys. So you can get very fluid and, and essentially the data that's sensitive never exists in the environment. Only that bookmark or that placeholder does. When the actual information is needed, it's then exchanged with that broker. So you first get the information, you get a placeholder, you use that in all your systems, and then when you need the real information again, you go back to the broker and get the final data. So uh, I don't think it's the encryption that's most difficult. Think about the states of data in your organization. Do you really need the information? Uh, if so, could could something that maybe is function or format preserving uh, be, be sufficient? And how can you actually remove the risk uh, from the environment, the risk footprint, without having to go straight to encryption? And when you do, do the key management correctly. Well, thanks very much. We've been talking today with Sam Curry of RSA. This is Howard Anderson of Information Security Media Group. Thanks so very much for listening.